Episode 37 with artist and storyteller Bisa Butler. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmus, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with fiber artist and storyteller, Visa Butler. Bisa tells stories of African heritage and American home through the artistry and craft we all know as quilt making. Her use of vibrant color and fine fibers reminds us that intentionality, textile, and choice allows our spirits to be known and rendered as portraits suspended in time, and that our stories will never be forgotten. Growing up in Orange, New Jersey, there was never a day where Bisa's talent was not affirmed by her family or her peers. A scion of Ghana and Louisiana, Bisa found herself amongst a family of women who taught her the importance of investing time, attention, and resources into one's artistry and technique. After graduating cum laude from Howard University with a degree in painting, Bisa found her niche in quilt making after taking a fiber arts class at Montclair State University. Choosing non-traditional fabrics such as chiffon and silk, Bisa captures remarkable portraiture realism that invokes a sense of place and honor for her subjects and her viewers. Affectionately known as Miss B to her former students, she credits her success to the Black women and grandmothers who have followed and fanned her work since its humble beginnings. Today, Bisa's work can be found in many institutions, including the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and even the cover of Time magazine. Today's conversation reminds us that our stories, our crafts, and our culture can be told in any medium when given care and craftsmanship. We also explore what it means to invest in your artistry, the universal human spirit, how a successful artist stays grounded, and the importance of teaching. Oh, and have you left us a review yet? Don't lie, it's Sunday. Head over to Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing over here. And just let us know what resonated with you over on Instagram or even Twitter at Black Imagination. And if you want to make sure you don't miss another episode, hit that subscribe button. This and more content is over on IBI Digital at BlackImagination.com. And without further ado, the incredible Bisa Butler. Bisa. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, It is such a pleasure to have you here. And it's kind of insane that um, we've been in dialogue for years, but this is our first kind of in-person, even though it's still virtual, um, (laughs) conversation. And um, so, yeah, so just welcome. And for for listeners, I'm a little bit flustered because Bisa and I have already kind of been having a beautiful conversation (laughs) that I think it's time that we invite you in on. Um, So welcome. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this the whole 
Christmas break. So oh, we're finally amazing. here. Yes. <laughs> and you're and for those of you who cannot see, Bisa is giving um a bit of holiday cheer in the background. <laughs> with, yes. <laughs> yes, this is gonna stay. This is <laughs> green patterned <laughs> yep. wall. Um but we were, you know, just speaking about um, you know, simulation theory. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, just thinking about are we in a simulation? Mm-hmm. And if we are, you know, what characters do we want to play? You know, or wow. are we just gonna sit out the game? And we were just talking about some some of us who've have passed away. Yeah. You know, waiting. Yeah. They're waiting for I just I just know too many people like that who are like, you know when this happens or things are going to get better and I'm, I'm not going to make a move yet until this happens. They have all of these things that need to happen before they will feel comfortable making that move or the change in their life. And it's just, we just cannot do that. We just can't do that. I had this aunt who was very much like, I feel like living in Paris, so I'm going to Paris. Um, And then she had her two children and she was like, oh, I'm going to be a fashion photographer in Paris. And then she decided that she wanted to be an astrologist. She found herself drawn to that. So she's like, well, now I'm doing astrology and I'm in between Paris and New York. And then she was like, it's really cold and gray here. I feel like living in Hawaii. (laughs) So she but she didn't have a lot of money at all. Like a fashion photographer in Paris in the 70s and the 80s, a black woman. and then moving to Hawaii, but she made the life that she wanted to have. And then on the, on the other hand, there was one of seven sisters and they all had sort of like a congenital heart condition. So most of them, save two, did not live past 60. So then I have other aunts who were like waiting, who stayed home in New Jersey and were like, well, I'm gonna wait until Oh, and until maybe my grandmother passed on, you know, and then I'll make a move. I'm going to wait until this guy proposes to me and then I'll make a move. You know, I'm going to wait until, until, until. And they, none of them had long lives. So like looking at that, I can look at my one aunt, Lydia, who was the photographer. And during her lifetime, people would have been like, oh, she's a gypsy. Like, what, what, is, what is going on? But she lived the life that she wanted to live. And now my cousins are fluent in, in French and English, and they're just these international kids because of the, of the way that they were raised. And so, yeah, I, I've just seen that a lot of people in, in the same family, you know, same mother, same father. One person fully engages and just jumps without the safety net. Like she wasn't wealthy. They're not wealthy people or someone who's like, well, I'm not, I don't feel safe. So I'm going to stay right here. Mm, mm. Um, you said so much, um, but I, I would actually first like to ask you, who would you like to dedicate this conversation to today? Oh my goodness. Well, since I spoke of my aunts, then I think I should dedicate it to the Hammond sisters. And um, I have two aunts who are living, my Tante Walda 
and my tante Monique. One is here in New Jersey and the other one is in the Cote d'Ivoire. So I'll dedicate it to them. Yeah, here's 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 to sisterhood and yes. here's to living the life that you want to. Yes. Yes. I feel like I've entered the mothership. I just want to say because of the <laughs> your setting is so beautiful and the lights. It just feels like this futuristic this like afro-centered utopia and I have entered the world of the Institute of Black Imagination. And I'm very happy to be here. Hey, come <laughs> through, come through. There's plenty good room. There's plenty good room. This is an infinite, infinite space. Yes. This is an infinite space. Yeah. Um, you know, and you also mentioned, you know, that this woman didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I love that because I think it allows us to think about value, mm-hmm. right? And that money does not equal value. Mm-hmm. And somehow through this kind of capitalistic post-industrial, you know, colonial process, those two have been flattened to mean the same thing. And they yes. don't, you know, Absolutely and I'm not. sure you and I both know people with plenty of money. Yes. And are completely trapped. Yep. Trapped in their head, trapped in lives that they don't want to be leading. Yes. Um, and to think about Mentally. your aunt. Mm-hmm. Oh, come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then thinking about your aunt who valued freedom, who yes. valued travel, who yeah. valued, you know, discovery and coming up against you know, new challenges and obstacles. Um, And then also then to think about who gets to benefit from that. Right. Right. You know, these children who are now bilingual, who have, you know, two different points of view on the world, jet like baseline. Absolutely. Me versus my cousins. I noticed that they have strengths there and we do think differently you know, me and my one cousin, the one who was raised in Paris, we went to college at the same time, except for I was in grad school and she was an undergrad. But her perspective as a Black woman who was raised in Paris was very different than my perspective as a Black woman raised here. Mm. And like there were so many presumptions that were made about like what Black people sound like, what they, she, she got into um, playing, I think, a bass guitar, like what kind of music you want to play what mm-hmm. kind of art what kind of she was a photographer is like her mother what kind of photographs do you want to take and um the white students in my courses were one day discussing her about how fascinating this girl was and how cool she was and blah 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 and I was like it just it was good and I guess it was good and bad it was fascinating because I was like that's my cousin and then like but the way they had elevated her to them because she was different than the ordinary black Americans. So it was, mm. it was very interesting. But And is but, this at Howard? No, this is at grad oh. school in Montclair State. Um, oh, okay. It was a predominantly white campus and the kids were just sitting around talking about this cool girl 
who was raised in Paris. And as they were talking, I was like, oh my God, they're talking about my cousin. <laughs> but they didn't associate us as being related because how could I, you know, the ordinary American be connected to this girl who wasn't like the other Blacks? Oh. I know I just went totally off topic. and I'm Absolutely sorry not. What are you time. talking about? <laughs> you know, you're, you're right on topic. <laughs> Girl, you're right on topic. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, that's, I think that's, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean to be ordinary black? Right. And, and how do you even, how are you defining that? Like, I love that you are creating this institute of learning and communication because as we move and learn and read, you know, you might read some, you might read, I don't know, Chenua Achebe or Sangor, like you might read some African poems of philosophy and realize that we are the same. So like the Black experience in Paris or the Cote d'Ivoire, the United States, between colonialism and slavery, um, we have more, way more in common than not. But because of, um, I guess, just because of discrimination, you know, that or the, those colonialistic um, separations of the tribes that we think that we're different or other people look at us like we're different, but we're absolutely not. And, you know, I'm going to actually expand that even further because, you know, yeah, I can read like Aime Cesare, right? Or Aime Cesare um, from the Negritude movement. But I can also read Dostoevsky and realize that we're all the same. Like, and that was actually my, one of my first, um, my first awakenings to the idea of like, wait, this is all a myth, right? Because I just randomly, I mean, yes, I did randomly pick up a Russian novel and just started reading. <laughs> I'm like, Dostoevsky, I had a Harlem Quinn novel. When I <laughs> but, you know, I was reading the Brothers Karamazov mm-hmm. and I just was listening to this Russian writer from the mid-1800s, and I'm like, mm-hmm. how are you speaking my little black boy St. Louis life? Yes. Like, speaking I was in us, it. The people. Like, I was in it. So it's right. not even about, like, I mean, I shouldn't say it's not about, it's not only just we are the same as, you know, people of color, but just yes. people. Like, guys, yeah. come on. Like, it's just foolishness. Like, it's pure yeah. foolishness. And it just showed me, like, some, somewhere along, somewhere, somewhere, somebody lied about something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I didn't know where it was, but yeah. there was a lie because there was no way that you could tell me that this person who separated from me by, a, like, I guess, pa- apparently race, definitely geography, yeah. and absolutely time yeah time right like over a century and i'm and he's in my head Mm -hmm. like he's in my life Mm -hmm. my thoughts my thought patterns the way that i'm thinking which was then really interesting because then i was reading um giovanni's room by james baldwin and i was like oh interesting james baldwin must have been must have been influenced by dostoevsky 
oh, because the structure cool. and that was one of his first novels, Be It Giovanni's uh-huh. Room, and mm-hmm. the structure was so similar, mm-hmm. um, and the the way in which he wrote, kind mm-hmm. of like Dostoevsky. Sometimes it seems like he's a, such a master that you don't realize it, but he's like really a, almost like a philosopher, mm-hmm. and so it's like he writes like these philosophical essays and then writes characters and stories just to get to the point for the character oh, to I say see. what they want to say, what he wanted yes. to say. Yes. And James Baldwin does that a lot as yeah. a device yeah. in his work. So yeah. you know, even in Giovanni's room, there are these kind of like long monologues that exist yeah. in 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 the book. And right. it's like it's almost like he wrote the characters and the story just to say just this. Just to get to that. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. and then during research and find out, absolutely. I Dostoevsky is one of his favorite writers. Yeah. So you know, and so when I think even about the Institute of Black Imagination or the archive that we have here, you mm-hmm. know, um, at the Oculus, like it isn't just about black writers and you know, um, you know, black culture that is yes. obviously here, but it's a breath, breath of yeah. information because it's take it takes all of us, like you know, it's and, higher and than that. It's it's, it's, higher. it's it's higher it's than higher. that. It's, it's bigger beyond than that. It's much more expansive than that. Yeah. yeah. And why should we why should we define ourselves by the way in which we were defined? Right. Right? Exactly. Why should why should we limit ourselves um with the very same limits of the people who were trying to limit us? Right. It makes no sense. Absolutely not. Why would we make an agreement? I want my mind to be expanded and I want to learn and experience as many things as I can. I don't want limits on those things based on my gender or my race or like you said, of time. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, speaking of being on the mothership, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about, you know, the illusions of all of the things you literally just listed. Yeah. Right. Gender, race, time, Exactly. Which Einstein calls a persistent, um, like an annoyingly persistent illusion, right? I mean, because it is not real, right? If, There's, if we it, can, with daylight savings, if we can change the time arbitrarily. You know what I mean? It's just, it's not real. It's not real then, because I could change it again, can't I? We can all agree. There's a different time now. Fine. Well, I mean, and the, Oh my God, Lisa. Okay, I'm I'm going to get to some of these questions, but like even something like that, like so, listeners, like like please just Google not only daylight savings time, but like Google like world calendars, yeah, and you'll realize that there are multiple. I mean, Jewish people know this, right? They have their own calendar, but huh? like just in general, spe- generally speaking, Chinese, Ethiopian, mm-hmm. Coptic, you know. People, everyone had different calendars, mm-hmm. you know, and through colonialization and industry, we've mm-hmm. all kind of aligned to this one sense of time that mm-hmm. even that is not perfect. Right. Not because all. which is it, because we had to create a leap year. But like there was one day when they <laughs> when everyone pivoted to the Gregorian calendar. Yeah. And they just like literally they just changed the date the next day so it was no. like one day it was like december 13th yeah. and then the next day was december 18th no <laughs> i shit you not or they like that went back ridiculous. or something i was like what so, and this i mean like this is this is common knowledge like do you know what i mean and so right. you know but to think like what would it be like in a world where 
everyone was existing within their own time. Oh, that would be really right. Like weird. every different group. I mean, yes. there was a point. <laughs> there yes. was a time in the yes. world. That's, that's how it was. But also realizing that individually, we yeah. also are all on our own clock. We're all in our own kind of calendar, which yeah. means that we can't judge someone else's level of development or right. what they've achieved or right. whatever, because the time that we're using to even talk about it is, first of all, not even real. Um, exactly. And then two, it is just as individual as the individual. Mm-hmm. And even within the individual's life, time mm-hmm. shifts and time mm-hmm. is malleable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. now Einstein proved that, you know, objects in motion actually move slower than objects that are standing still. So when wow. you are in motion, yeah. you literally are moving like time is moving slower for you. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's kind of imperceptible. I think it yeah. happens to us sometimes when we, you know, are like rushing and we get really focused, you know, to try yes. to get somewhere. And then we end up yeah. getting there like three minutes before, even though we think in our head that we're late. Yes. It's like because yes. for you, time was actually moving much slower. And so you think that you're late that, when that's actually you're late. You know, you're on time, but you know, it's relative to the object in motion, the theory of relativity, right? Time is actually, it's relative. It's not a fixed standard thing. So then Mm -hmm. what does it mean, right? To be where you are. Like you're right where you're supposed to be. Exactly. At any given moment in time. (laughs) I mean, you, you are in this space and you're reacting to things that are around you. You think that everybody feels the way you do, but they definitely do not. They definitely do not. I remember being like in a stressed situation and then you do think it's really slow. Like, you know, like if you've been in a car accident. Yes, exactly. It's like, it's unreal. You remember every detail. So if your brain can do that, then Mm. what is the perception of time? When like, when you're not aware, it's just, it's also, it's your perception. Wow. Okay, let me let me <laughs> speaking of perception. Speaking yes. of perception. Yes. Um I mean <clears throat> the way in which you see is just phenomenal. You know, it's it's such a beautifully clear open channel. Um, you you know, it, it reminds me of when I went to, and this is not in any way a comparison, Mm -hmm. but, um, but I remember when I went to the Van Gogh museum in Amsterdam and they have so many of his paintings, like from the very beginning of his sketches all the way to, to starry night to the end. And you can see, you can see him lose his mind through the paintings because yeah. his perception shifts. Yes. You can I, I, see the progression. Yes. I it's see that re- in, a, in a lot of painters, though. Some of them mm. have had that mental health issues. You see it. <clears throat> I mean, but I, I, but I also think that it is what we respond to, no matter the mental state of the individual, mm-hmm. is how open that channel <clears throat> is. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. flow. And we react to the beauty of the flow. Yes. You know, of yeah. information versus yeah. it being blocked or trying to be controlled. Right. Um, and, you know, to see your your work, you know, in a two dimensional plane, right on mm-hmm. Instagram or even on a magazine cover mm-hmm. is visually stunning. But mm-hmm. to view it in person is a whole other level. I mean, just ma- like, like they're masterpieces. Like, Thank you. Like when we, um, for, for listeners who do not know, um, I moonlight as a curator sometimes. And Bisa <laughs> was a curator oh, sometimes. Thank you. <laughs> sometimes, girl. No. Um, <laughs> Um, we did a show in St. Louis called Fashioning the Black Body, <clears throat> um, which explored the different ways in which different um, artists of color engage the fashion object in their work. Not deliberately, but just the object itself. Mm-hmm. And Bisa is one extreme. This is three. And this is three years ago. And we could barely yeah. find a piece to even put <laughs> in the show. And we ended up, you know, getting a wonderful loan from a, a local uh collector yeah but baby when that thing unraveled <laughs> when we rolled it out i love that video when y'all <laughs> unraveled that piece i i stopped breathing i stopped wow. breathing because the level of detail is just insane the layering is insane um but you know i think it's interesting that you know when we think about the practice of art and mm-hmm. art making, mm-hmm. um, and then just artist careers in general. Mm-hmm. So many artists, I think, are really trying to push to the institutional level. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just had, mm-hmm. you know, a museum show in Chicago. Yes. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. My that sister so actually fun. went up to Chicago to see it and Did has she? not, baby, has not stopped talking about oh it my God. since. Has not stopped talking about it wow. since. Like picked up everything that she could purchase <laughs> except a piece. Um, <laughs> I love that <laughs> tote bag. She got she, everything. Yeah. I'm glad she got that tote bag. People have been asking <laughs> about those tote bags. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I I wonder like how can you speak to what it means to be a practicing artist? Mm-hmm that really has a fan base that's outside of a traditional fan base, right? Like, you know, again, most artists are really trying to push, you know, towards this very specific kind of like gallery representation that then like gets you Mm -hmm. into kind of these institutions Mm -hmm. where your trajectory is much broader. Mm -hmm. I think maybe that's the, I guess it's a combination of things, but, since I spent so many years, you know, outside of the mainstream gallery system, and I was an art teacher, a high school art teacher in public high school, mostly um, Black and Latinx students, immigrant students, and then I'm a mother of two. So my experiences were like, I'm working with kids all day long, teaching art, and then hopefully I can make art when I get home. I can make a little at a time. And so they were Black galleries that supported me, um, mostly 
the black galleries would be local or if, if they weren't local to me, they were local to um, black neighborhoods where they were like um, Thelma Harris, Fine Art in Oakland. She would always like take two or three pieces from me and sell them. So I was selling my artwork, but my fan base or like the people who supported me were regular local folks who might walk into that gallery. <clears throat> and then I exhibited everywhere, anywhere, anybody who said like, Lisa, there's an opportunity here. It's at the community center or like a friend of mine, she had a house in Martha's Vineyard, um, but the exhibit was like on her front lawn. Like, so I was just like, whatever I could do, wherever, because I had the interest, you know, I wanted to be like, like any other artist, you know, you want to be in museums, you want this or that. But being a student from Howard, um, my heroes were Jacob Lawrence and Elizabeth Catlett and Lois Jones. And I knew that a lot of them taught and sold their artwork at the same time. Um, one of my favorite artists of all time, big hero, Alma Thomas, she was the first graduate of fine arts at the school of, at Howard, I think it was 1924. She went on to teach for 35 years and did not go full-time until after she retired. So that was already the template set by like Alma Thomas. That's okay, you do this other job. And then when you retire, if you're lucky, you can do your art professionally. So my, my base were like people who were interested in quilts, um, people who may, maybe were not at the big mainstream art galleries. Maybe they weren't going into those big museums. Um, so I think that that propels me now because I, think, um, I was just, I don't really read books on business because it's not that interesting to me, although I should. But they, somebody was saying something about the strongest network is that word of mouth network that's often overlooked. But my whole entire engine under me, the base was all word of mouth. It still is. So all of those aunties and black women and local folks who were like buying my pieces for 20 years, those are the people who swelled into the Art Institute. Because you had your regular Art Institute crowd and then all of a sudden, all these other people who were coming in to see the quilts. I feel like that's also the nature of a quilt. It's for family, it's for warmth, it's for comfort. It's your heritage. It's made communally. It's not made, you know, you don't traditionally make them by yourself. So we all felt that connection and that's black and white, international or national, you know, the idea of a quilt being made as something of comfort that represents home meant that everybody felt welcome. So that the groundswell I think started with um, regular folks. You know, the ordinary, the people, you know, we just speak about ordinary people. And then those ordinary people, they have tendrils that go to every, you know, those six degrees. It's, we know it's a lot less than that, but those tendrils just go to so many places. So I think that, that that's what propelled me to where I am now, just that having a really strong, um, 
down to earth base who talk a lot, women who talk a lot. <laughs> I'm like now, now, now I need to like send the producer a message and see if we can get the rights to ordinary people <laughs> to, <laughs> to play after this. Yeah, that would be nice. Maybe we should take it slow. But like you're coming off like such an incredible year. Um, like what, 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 what grounds you in this moment? I guess this year, you know, this year of isolation, very strange year. But what grounds me always, I think, it are those years in the classroom. All you need is a teenager to be like, mm, this is boring. Like, they will shut you down instantly. I don't know how you can work with teenagers and not be extremely humble because you're constantly trying to engage them and trying to bring them in. And I always felt so good when the cockiest, most disinterested kid the light bulb was, you know, on and they were into it. And I would see them like working on their thing. And then they would come after school, Miss B, can I work on that thing? And it just, it feels so like, because I know that it's more than just that they like doing that. This is something that can carry them for the rest of their life and made me feel fulfilled. And so that life of always wanting more for my students and I guess more for other people um, created me like as I am now so even when things happen good things I'm happy about them but I guess at the base and then and when I break it all down like I'm still like just Miss B you know just trying to do what I'm doing so yeah when you spoke earlier, you talked about your years that you had of living and becoming a full human being. So I'm grateful for that. I don't know what I would have been like if I was like straight out of Howard and like had my solo at the Art Institute and had all this attention. I'm not sure what that person would be. Mm. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, my mother likes to remind me of this, um, mm -hmm. but when I was in high school, because, you know, I was a performer, so I was, you know, all over the place, perform, you know, doing commercials, stuff like that. Yeah. I was like, I don't know, 16 or something. And I told yeah. my mother, I was like, I don't want it to happen quickly for me. Yeah. I was like, I don't want to wow. be young. I was, like, yeah. I, I was like, I want to like take my time. It was really straight yeah, I don't know what sixteen-year-olds. You have vision. <laughs> said it, but he was like, I, but he you was like, vision. I don't want, I don't want it to be, yeah, because you know, because you know, I would just see like young people just burn out, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just burn out, and mm -hmm. then there's drugs, and then it's all these other mm -hmm. things that kind of come in uh, the way, you know, to yes. distract. Yes. Um But speaking about just like affirming young people and really seeing them thrive like mm -hmm. you know you had a really early start in, in in art like who who was one of the first people to affirm your your existence in in, in an art practice I mean really it was I can't remember a moment to be honest that people were not telling me that my art was good mm. like I remember um artists of the month 
back in 19, like 77. I think I must've been like four or something, but I remember that. I remember feeling so proud. And when the month changed, they had like a bulletin board, the name changed. And I remember like the horror because I didn't understand months when we're talking about time. A four-year-old doesn't understand when the month is over. So I'm like, why is my name not? I couldn't read the other name, but I know it wasn't mine anymore. I thought I was artist of the school for life. Like what? <laughs> why is it a different name up there? <laughs> so <laughs> I just always felt like that. And that this was um, full 70s, deep 70s mode. So my mother would take us to like, we went to an ERA, like equal rights amendment camp. It was like for families and it was women centered and they had like this whole art um they had like a whole art facility but I always thought that I was the best artist but people would tell me that but I was like a, a little kid I'm pretty sure they tell all the kids that that their drawings are real but I took it like I thought it was for real so maybe my drawings were better than the other little kids or not I have no idea but I don't remember never feeling like that and um, at Howard, there were so many talented people. I mean, to the left of me would be, and the right were people way more talented in painting. So I did feel at that, at that time, I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with art because this is not it. I had this good friend, Jamila, and she had the beautiful line. Her brushwork was like, I don't know, like 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 a Japanese writer, you know, very, very beautiful writing, but she was painting. And I knew that I didn't have that. And then somebody else next to me might've been like an incredible drafts person. And I was like, what is it? And so it, I didn't figure it out until after I got out of Howard. Howard didn't offer fibers as a course there was no like quilt making or anything like that. Howard wanted to have a very black curriculum in one sense, but they wanted to take what the European art movement had and do it better or do it more or do it um, with a more um, African centered origin, but still doing the same things. They weren't like going to have a class on kente weaving, like because that wouldn't be offered in the Sorbonne or something like that. And so I did it afterwards in grad school at Montclair State. There was a women, a women-run um, collective that started the fibers program and insisted any student who graduated from art with an art degree, whether it was education or studio. Um, sculpture, photography, you had to take fiber arts. So I had to take it retroactively because I didn't have that from Howard. And that's when I made my first quilt. They had us weaving and knitting and felting. At that moment was when I was like, this is it. The fibers, it was the studio, it was the warmth. It was being in the company of mostly women which I didn't know I was responding to intellectually. I just knew that I felt at home there. The stacks, instead of stacks of books, there would just be cones and cones of thread. 
like lamb's thread, um, lamb's wool thread and acrylic thread. And it was a whole room that must have been maybe, I don't even know, but it was just rows and rows and rows of cones. And it made me feel that this place is where I fit. And that's when I made my first portrait quilt. It was just an example. It was a sample for class. And I was like, this is it. Like I can make art, I can make portraits, I can sew, which I love to do. I can use African fabric, which I grew up around and I love and I wear. Um, and I can quilt. I don't have any evidence that my ancestors were quilters, but I think they had to have been, they had to. Or if it's reincarnation, either I was or someone else was. And then my Ghanaian side um, with the kente weaving and the dyeing and the batik cloth, it just, it has to be because the moment it touched, it was like, yes. So I think that there's definitely, there are other forces there. Wow, I mean, you touched on so many uh, like <laughs> topics that like just just <laughs> wells that we could just swim in. Um, I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to do a little pickup here. Um, so, you know, first of all, like this concept of of quilt making. Yeah, you know, you had never really encountered it until you took fiber arts but your yes your grandmother and I think maybe even your mother were like dressmakers right they were seamstresses right so there was a there was a um there was a familiarity at least in the world of yes. of sewing yes. you know what what how have the matriarchs in your family influenced you in other ways as well oh hugely my grandmother, my mother was born in New Orleans. My grandmother's side, um, when we trace it back, they've been in New Orleans since like the 1700s. They were black people and black Creoles. And what, as you know, like the Creoles, they were in that weird, I'm black, but I'm trying to be, in some ways, trying to be other than. Um, and in those days, unfortunately, the way a lot of people made their money was through slavery. So some of my grandmother's ancestors or my ancestors were black slave owning people, which is very, that's a whole nother thing. I don't even know, but they were trying to exist in this space and look and have those trappings of wealth or class. So sewing was like very, a very big part of life in those days. You wanted to dress in a certain style in a certain fashion. And that, that carried on that love of fashion. I mean, I don't want to say it just started there. I mean, we had a love of fashion when our ancestors were in Africa as well. <clears throat> Your clothes are, they indicate what tribe you're from and how much money you have and what's your status. Are you married, unmarried? Um, and my mother and all of them, they still sewed a lot. They wanted to be really fashionable. Um, they lived in Morocco. My grandfather was a U.S. emissary 
So here's this big black family in the 50s transplanted to Morocco in the world of like um, ambassadors and embassies and diplomats. This is just a middle-class family. So they had to sew even more. They had all these events that they had to go to and all these, these seven girls. There's three boys and seven girls. They had to make, so they would look at magazines like um, Paris Match. They would look at Vogue in the 50s and they'd find like things, Yves Saint Laurent, like the older designers, Christian Dior and Givenchy and make dresses based on those images. So I grew up seeing that in the 80s. My mom and them still did that. If we were somewhere fancy and we had to go, you wouldn't just go to Macy's and buy an outfit. They would like look through the Vogue's and like find some Halston outfit and be like, yeah, yeah, we could. And they would make that because they, oh, they still wanted to show out. So I grew up seeing like being influenced by these designers and they always wanted the best fabrics too. They would look at what is it made of? Like they'd be like, oh no, this must be gabardine. Like they wouldn't do with the polyester chiffon. Like that had to be silk chiffon because they knew when you sew, you know what things feel like, what the, how they fall on your body, um, the craftsmanship of that. I remember my prom dress, I picked out a um, Carolina Herrera, um, empire waist baby doll style dress who did I think I was anyway <laughs> who are you and the I truth it, apparently apparently <laughs> I circled it and brought it to my mom this is what I want for prom so my mother went out she had to go to like the Indian section to get this certain red chiffon and then it had like a scalloped edge she had to get fishing wire and research, how do you make a scalloped edge? And sew that in by hand. And I remember like appreciating it, but still being like kind of on the bratty side, like, you no, know, looking at the picture and be like, no, this one has more ruffles. Like <laughs> the spoiledness that was happening, my mother was willing to tolerate it because it was prom. It wasn't like she did that all the time, but I saw how that dress came out and the attention to detail. And that was well before I was quilting. But I remember that. And th that stays with me now when I'm working on that attention. It has to be right. I went, one time I made a whole dress and I thought I was so fly. This was like, what era was this? Mm, maybe SWV or- Ooh, 96. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> So I had a linen, a cream linen that I made like a form-fitting long dress with a split. And I had cowrie shells around the collar. It was like a, it was a choke collar. It, I just really was doing a lot. But I thought that I was looking like Jada Pinkett, like Jason's lyric, something. And my grandmother looked at the dress and was like, she kept lamenting. She's like, but but look at the hem and look at the way you did this. I remember being like, grandma, nobody's gonna be looking at my hems like that. I was spending the night. And when I woke up the next morning, my grandmother had unstitched the entire dress and sewed it back together in the right way. She couldn't bear to see me going out in this dress. 
I remember that. Like, it has to be done right. So, yeah, that's what, that's what I got from those matriarchs. Do it right. And if it's not right, don't worry about the time. You know, unstitch it and do it again. Mm. Mm. That is a word. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to hold that till Sunday. Pull it back out. <laughs> In case I don't make it to service, which I definitely won't be. I can tell you that now. Um, you know, incredible. Like, incredible. Uh, you know, my my mother's also a seamstress. And really? it makes it now I feel like I need to call her yes. because I remember, you know, just staying up all night watching her like sewing my sister's cotillion dress. And you know oh, wow. what it was? Is that it's that fishing line wire ruffle. I remember my yes. mother learning that technique yes. to create the scalloped edge and you know the big, you know, this is when you had like the big ruffle, the yes. shoulders and all that other stuff. Yeah. My mother up all it. night, you know, I remember the pastor's anniversary, you know, and again, you would pick out something. I mm-hmm. MC Hammer was big yeah. at the time. And I had this like olive, like, I don't know, like MC Hammer suit that my mother made with these wow. big, huge pans with like I a bolero, bolero double breasted blazer, yes. like cropped. Like, you couldn't have bought that. Baby, you, you, you couldn't tell it. me a goddamn thing. You could not. I could see that in my head. Absolutely. I could see I could see it in my head still. <laughs> but, you know, I, I love this idea of like, you know, the dressmaker, um, particularly as it pertains to um, pertains to black people. Mm-hmm. And even when we think about fashion, many black fashion designers we know today yeah. and throughout history, you know, have mothers and grandmothers yes. that were dressmakers. Like yes. that's where that whole kind of concept began. Um, understand, un- and, and so from a very early age, understanding fabric, understanding texture, tone, um, what goes with what, shape, yes. cut, you yes. know, because you're just really growing up, you know, in these worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of double tapping on this tradition of stitching, I think it's just so it's not stitching quilting Mm -hmm. you know I think it's so rich um and it's a part of why you know I wanted you in that show because there are many Mm -hmm. people who were looking at the quilt making tradition in Mm -hmm. in in various ways Mm -hmm. um but like the storytelling you know Mm -hmm. and the layering um Mm -hmm. that you put in into your quilts um why did you decide that this was the story you wanted to tell like Mm -hmm. like unpack that because there are so many layers right like the fabrics Mm -hmm. that you choose Mm -hmm. the images that you reference Mm -hmm. um and then how those things are are rendered I think no I know the story that I'm telling is just my own you know but not my own as an individual but my own, my people and who we are or where we come from. Like it started out just in class making a portrait of my grandmother. But then um, after I decided, okay, now I want to make a collection of quilts that I want to sell. I wasn't necessarily going to give everybody a portrait of my grandmother. So I was like, just perusing, looking at images online, you know, thinking about what could I do, what could I do, but I was still drawn to that idea of the elders, 
grandma, grandpa, and those were the images that I kept in my mind from seeing those black and white photos. Being a child from 70s, most of the family photos were all black and white. Um, so I find myself looking at those things and not deliberately doing it, but constantly telling the story of the black family. Who do we admire? Who are the stories that we grew up hearing about? Like when I mentioned Jacob Lawrence, to us at Howard, Jacob Lawrence was like saying Michelangelo. There was no difference. Actually, we didn't care about Michelangelo or da Vinci. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, the people who our professors spoke to us about were those Harlem Renaissance artists or, the, or even before that, you know, the... Um, the uh, Henry Tanners, the um, Edmonia Lewises, like the Black people who came before them. Um, those were the heroes that I look up to. So when I create a thinking about who do I want to make this of, it's still like going back to what did I learn when I was younger? Our heroes were Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, and Sojourner Truth. So that's part of our story as Black Americans. And that's what I'm drawn to. And I'm drawn to images that remind me of us. So if I see a beautiful, strong man, he's just sitting on a street corner, he's just an ordinary person, but I see like the beauty there. So that's the story that I want to tell. I think that there's so much beauty all around us. You know, I, sometimes people ask me, why do, or do you make these people look so regal? I'm like, I'm not making them look regal. They already look like that. <laughs> like, I'm just lucky enough to try to be able to capture it right, especially if the photographers like Gordon Parks or James Vanderzee. I don't even know if I'm touching on their magnificence. I'm just trying to replicate what I see, but then I'm also wanting to filter it through, what, can, what else can I say about this person based on the information in this photo and based on what I know of our people? So like that fabric choice, you know, we are fine, we are classy, we are beautiful. So I wanna use the best fabrics on them. And I remember my childhood, I'm not gonna use polyester, unless I'm specifically trying to reference polyester, but I'm not going to use like a polyester satin. It doesn't look the same, doesn't have the luster, doesn't have that soft feeling of polyester satin. It doesn't have it. If I want to use velvet, I want to use silk velvet. It looks different. It's richer. And I want, I just, I feel like I'm just doing my best to express and manifest in a physical form what I think about this person. So if I make the hair out of a crushed black velvet, it's because I think that our hair is beautiful and soft and puffy and rich. Um, and I use African cloths because that's a part of my heritage. So I'm doing this portrait of this person, but it's also the story of us, the story of me being this woman who has parentage from Louisiana and Ghana. 
So I'm putting those batiks in there and that kente, if kente is meant for royalty or, or dignitaries, and I find that this person is dignified, I want them to have that. And then I'm also saying like, I want you to have this. So it's like my gift to that ancestor who could be looking down or, or who knows, maybe sitting right by me watching what I'm doing. I want them to look good. I want them to feel proud of it. I want them to have the best. And I want that acknowledgement that we come from Africa. Our ancestors come from something. So we didn't just start here as slaves. What about before that? So I'm trying to include all of these things. So when you see one of my portraits, I want you to see like what that person looks like. And then also, what do I think of them? And what am I referencing? What is their actual past and heritage beyond this moment of just sitting on a street corner in Alabama? I love this, um, this reference to like value and, and mm -hmm. the best, right? Mm -hmm. That like, and intentionality, mm -hmm. right? Like you're being very deliberate um, mm -hmm. with what you use, why you're using it, when you use it. And again, and it, and it resonates. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're listening and you have an opportunity to actually see one of Bisa's works in person, you'll, you'll, you'll get it because what you think is a line mm -hmm. is really like a fine piece of like chiffon that was just like, has like, 14 stitches in it and it's just like but it's just an eyebrow and you're like oh, oh my god <laughs> this is like this is a wild um and I've also seen a couple of videos of you working with that machine honey oh, I don't know what that the is beast. honey the beast so you know so I would love to 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 speak a little bit about what does it mean to invest yeah. in yourself right because that what I saw, you definitely can't get at Home Depot. Um, and they're not selling it on Amazon. <laughs> so obviously there was a moment or a transition moment when, you know, this concept of not only using the best materials, but like I need to make sure yeah. that the tools I'm using yeah. also allow me to get at right. the thing that I'm trying to express. Yes. And that's, that's a familial influence as well. My dad, who's still living, um, he, do he doesn't want me to tell his age. He's 80 and a little above 80, <laughs> he, he really encouraged me when I decided that I was gonna stop teaching and, and make art full time. He was like, well, what kind of machine do you need? And I was like, well, there's this huge machine and it costs as much as a car. I might get it in a few years. And, and he heard that from me saying, you know, putting it off and he was like, no, you need to have the right kind of machine so that you can do the job, you need the tools. And we, he went with me to one of the trade shows where they have, it's a quilting convention and they have a whole section where it's just the tools, the machines. And they had the manufacturers showing their wares and people are, but most of the people there are these little, first of all, we were in Pennsylvania with these little Amish women and Quaker women and they're buying these expensive machines to make quilts for their family and for their community as a hobby, some of them. 
and and most of the women there I would say were 60 and up I'm like if they're investing all this time and money how am I a professional artist and unwilling to invest or thinking that I need to wait um I think I was probably the only person I don't want to say the only I don't think I saw too many people in that whole hall under 50 unless they were selling the equipment, but they were busy and they were making money. Um, so I still have that familial support. I have my father on me constantly. My husband, um, he's just, he will find the, the most awesome fabric shops in the garment district and introduce himself to people there and then and then find a personal shopper for me who will help me pick out all these fabrics that I want. Um, so I have a lot, there's the, still the tribe around me that's helping me. Um, and the, the lovely part about being in the garment districts, a lot of those fabrics are the remnants or like the the fabrics that the designers couldn't use maybe they ordered who knows they ordered a thousand yards of like of of some kind of printed damask and then they're they give it over to the fabric they sell it to them for much cheaper so a lot of the fabrics that i'm getting are like designer fabrics really high quality um but the names won't be on them but when I see them in magazines, I'm like, I have that fabric. <laughs> I have that too. But yeah, so I have those, those reminders all the time from the people around me, like, um, what do you need? And I have said, my father bought the beast. So I, I couldn't even, this was like me coming right out of teaching. I could not afford it. Um, so that family support is everything. It's everything. I think my mom bought my first machine and then my father bought this one. I got all of their remnants of fabric, all those dresses and suits and coats that my grandmother and aunts were making. Um, when they passed, all that fabric came to me. So my fabric all, already was high quality and they were dressmakers fabric, which makes my quilts look different being outside of the ordinary quilting tradition. Uh, quilters usually make cotton quilts. And if you go to a fabric store and you ask for the quilt section, it's all cotton. And they're like calico or they're printed or they might have like pastel paisley. They don't have the fabrics that I wanted to use or were interested in. And I think that I'm glad that I'm educated but I'm also kind of glad that I didn't come from a strict quilting tradition because maybe the fabrics that I use would have been a no-no. Like, I think they would have been rejected. That's not for, if this is a bed covering, then those chiffons are not durable. Mm. You know, it's interesting as you speak, I'm like, First of all, I'm like, mm, we need to do this show again because these really are fashion objects. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, these are actual fashion <laughs> objects and yeah. straight up facts. Like, there's nothing like going into 
I mean, here in New York, we have like mood or whatever and going to that oh, section man. and you see these incredible fabrics and you're like, yes. you know, and they whisper to you They, you know, you say, mm-hmm. what do you want to be? Yeah. Who do you? <laughs> yeah. Who do you, you want to be? How do you want to be seen? How do you, How do you fall? What? What? I I can feel this weight. What right. should that be? Is that is that a skirt? Is that a coat? Is that a scarf? Is that you yes. know like you know there 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 are lives you know woven into that, and I also love this concept of the beauty in the remnants. Mm-hmm. Right. The beauty mm-hmm. that can be created from what was too much or, you know, even not valued or, or, or worthy yes. or deemed worthy. Right. You know, and yet, you know, there's still juice in it. Right. Right. Because right. there's another way you can be used. And in that, mm-hmm. I feel that there is a message for a lot of us. hmm. Mm-hmm. about what rejection means yes you know about yeah. what not fitting in means about yeah. what not having enough uh you know seating mm-hmm. means right like, that you're mm-hmm. extra like you're mm-hmm. too much you feel yeah. like oh they already have enough of this mm-hmm. i don't need to be in this space mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that does not mean that you can't be used in another way and right. much more unique and individual way right. that, that right. there's another you know you're we're judging our value based on a very thin line um rigidness of uh-huh, of beauty mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. and, ex- and acceptance and it's mm-hmm. like no no it's actually in the dismantling of that and maybe the recombination of yes. it Yes. That creates an entirely new and unique expression, absolutely. Right, that you can be a part of. You know that, yes. that you know what you're what you're creating. You know, with these tapestries, is like a visual gumbo, mm-hmm. right? Like exactly. made of the finest ingredients. Yes, honey. No, ca- no canned corn here. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's the gumbo. You know, like, and it's interesting that so many of our traditions are about that, right? Mm-hmm. About um, mm-hmm. not only just like the taking of scraps, right? Even mm-hmm. and, and then creating something beautiful. You think of like the work of like El Anatsui, um, Love his who work. we should we should link up in the show notes um, yes. as well, who's an incredible artist. And you get close. I mean, you see these tapestries again, right? You think they're gold. Yes. <laughs> Right. And they're bottle caps. They're just bottle caps. You know, and, and because he's approached that tradition, right, which is kind of yeah. almost also a quilt-making tradition yes. using unconventional materials, yes. um, it also allows for it to move and be and exist in a way mm-hmm. that a traditional quilt could never, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. to hold mm-hmm. mass and shape in a way that a traditional quilt could never, you know, to no. be literally draped and undulated on the facade of a building. Right. Like, do you know, and these are bottle caps. Right. This is the shit people didn't think was useful. <laughs> I know. You know, and so what, and, and, and so then what does that mean? Right. What right. does that mean to shift your lens on reality? 
Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's what you spoke about as well. You know, yes. you look, one person looks at a photo and they see a bum sitting on a street corner in Alabama and you yeah. see beauty and light and mm-hmm. shape and you mm-hmm. render that completely differently. And it's the mm-hmm. same thing. And mm-hmm. so in a way, it al- almost not only um, proves, but also deems necessary mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. one should trust, try out different lenses on yes. reality. I love because that. Because you... And the person across from you can be looking at the same thing and be seeing something completely different. Completely different. I mean, the lens of a teacher, if I have a kid who is more disheveled and maybe didn't get to take a shower that day or the day before, and a lot of people would treat that kid bad, just don't sense, don't stand by me, you smell. Your clothes are not nice. You don't care about yourself. You're a hug. But I see that this is a human being of value, just like everyone else. Like, why you, you cannot put what you think on that person in a negative way. Think the best of them. So I think about most people that way. And even if they're gone, long gone, like you said, separating time. I don't know, but you have to see what is good in us and in people, like you said, possibly don't fit in, who are different. What do you see there that is good and of value and bring that out? Mm, Absolutely. Um, I want to be respectful of your time as well. Um, I have just a couple of uh, additional questions if that's okay sure. um and we've kind of we've kind of spoken tangentially and kind of circled around it throughout this conversation but sure. you know what is your spiritual practice if any and mm-hmm. how do you relate to spirit what does that mean to you to me i definitely believe that there is a higher power um, my mother was a muslim and my father is a catholic So I'm somewhere in between those things. You know, I I pray every night. Um, I don't feel that we're alone in this space at all. I feel like the ancestors are there. They're watching and they are responding and they're around us. They can help us. Um, But I think it's very, very important to recognize that we're not the end all be all. If you ever watch any of those science documentaries and they show the earth from space, how small it is, just a speck of dust, that how can we have or think that, first of all, that it's just us or that life is purposeless when there's so many things that have to come together to, for us, me and you to even be sitting here talking, you know? There's so many systems around us in the air and in our own bodies that one thing goes wrong in this amazing divine system and it's chaos. Um, I hope that answers the question. Mm-hmm. No, that gets to it. <laughs> <laughs> that gets that gets to it. I, I was I was I was I was actually kind of a bit of an in a trance. Um, Bisa, this has been a phenomenal conversation and obviously obviously 
um, we there will be many more, and yes. I look forward to it. Um, <laughs> but before I ask our last question, sure. um, I just want to just take a moment to acknowledge your incredible, um, just incredible body of work, but just your um, your incredible spirit um, that is so so grounded you know and so beautiful and so supportive i mean we don't know each other and you have supported me for like three <laughs> years like every every moment every opportunity yes. there's bisa saying amazing saying yeah. like ah i love this and that is incredible and so just a life of pouring into yeah. um, other people is 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 the art of living right that that what we see hanging on a wall is just a remnant of the way in which you live yes you know is and and the way in which you see the world and other individuals as beautiful as the best and deserving of the best and the highest quality at all times you know and and not and not a penny less right and not a stitch less absolutely not (laughs) and even in the process of what seems like a mistake it's okay to redo it you know and that's what we witness um that's what's rendered manifest for each of us through your body of work and so i just want to acknowledge and thank you for that um and i'm sure there's a whole cadre of students that you've touched as well as miss b (laughs) <laughs> they're still um, in my dms <laughs> okay <laughs> i love it i, I owe one of it. them um oh gosh what i own oh the uh the tote bag i Ooh. said i would send them a tote bag <laughs> okay the work never ends no um so so for my last question um you know if you had you know everything at your behest if you had all the power mm-hmm. what is the world that you imagine for the future Oh my gosh. If I had all the power, we would have to think about, first of all, we want to sustain this world. So we definitely need to look at the environment hard and serious. Are we, um, are we overstaying our welcome by, you know, crushing down on the resources of this planet that we're living in? And then, We've got to reform this whole, I don't want to say like toss it away and start over, but some of the fundamentals of our society based on these divisions, racial divisions, uh, they got to go because it's it's definitely not working. Um, And then the whole idea of like, get all the greediness get it all for me, 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 I need enough. I want more and more and more money, money, money. And when I'm dead, I guess, I only wanted to go to my descendants, but I, I still have, I want my greed to succeed past my, my death. That has got to go. I think I would have a whole reordered society if it was up to me. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. that. I um, <laughs> It's probably love- too much, but no, hey, it's my no. world to make it. These things are not going to exist anymore. Yeah, I just a final meditation on that. Like as you were speaking, 
you know, when we think about and 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 that's what we're here doing, right? Like that is that is that is what undergirds, right? The yeah. Institute of Black Imagination. Yeah. And underst- gender and sexuality. I have to say, I have to put that in there too. And religion too. We need overhauls. Yeah, because it's not working for any of us, right? Not at all. Um, but once we realize or awaken to or remember that this was just a design, mm-hmm. that this was just an idea at some mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. you know, and just because we were born into it doesn't make it permanent. Um, and not. that we individually and collectively have the power, mm-hmm. have the power mm-hmm. to shift and change. Mm-hmm. You know why? Mm-hmm. By just telling ourselves a different story, right? Yes. And that works personally and that works collectively. And so, you know, here the at the IBI, like yeah. that's, that's really what we're about, right? That mm-hmm. that understanding that the world that we live in has been designed and we're going to have to design mm-hmm. our way out of it. And yes. it's yes. unfortunately, or I shouldn't say unfortunately, it's incumbent on the marginalized and the oppressed, those who have an outside mm-hmm. view, those who didn't mm-hmm. have room in the space, right? Mm-hmm. Who have a different perspective yeah. on the movie that's playing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They can see yeah. around Right. They've right. been left out so they can see it from that distance. Yeah. And so that's our work. Um, and so thank you for doing your work. It's been an absolute thank pleasure. You. Have a beautiful afternoon. You too. I and uh, so I look forward fun. to it. Ah, likewise, likewise, likewise. To be continued. Yes. yes. Okay. Be continued. Bye. Thank you. Of course. Of course. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Bisa has such an amazing heart and dedication to her craft. Let us know what resonated with you over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to check out this conversation and more amazing content on our new digital interactive platform, blackimagination.com. We have so many exciting guests on the way. I cannot wait to share them with you. You know, memories are what we make of them. They're quite light and immaterial, actually. What would happen if you told yourself a different story? Stay curious and keep dreaming.